Welcome to the Ask Brian Podcast Radio Show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to KHS 1220 and 98.1 FM and live from Los Angeles. So every week we have a show called Ask Brian, A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N. And every week everybody asks us what the E is about. And we have a gentleman here who is an engineer who begins with an E and he likes to help out and tell us all about the E's, you know, and one of the main E's that we added on last week, so in case he forgets, that was education. We tried to educate people about business concepts. That's what Ask Brian is all about. And one of the reasons why we go through this process is nobody understands why Brian is spelled with an E, because everybody says, when I grew up, I had a friend, Brian, it was B-R-Y-A-N or B-R-I-A-N, and why do you have the name Brian with an E? And we have reasons why we have an E. You know, we just didn't come up with it for no reason at all. And our engineer, who likes to get part in the radio business here, decided to help us out. And without any further ado, how do you spell ado? A-D-I-E-U. And why do I love that word? Because every single letter minus the D is a vowel. I'm sure there are other words. Oh, Patty, I'm so sad. <laughs> I just don't want to give him the satisfaction, Trace. <laughs> don't worry, I, I control. Like I control the conversation. Oh yeah, that's clear because he's coming across defeated and sad. <laughs> well, this is a like positive. Maybe you should even play our favorite sound effect. <laughs> well, they don't even have the side effects anymore. I mean, I know what happened. They have none of those bells or whistles or anything. You have any of that, Patrick? Dun 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 dun. Where's that? We can today. We can make our own sound effects. How about that? Well, you should have them. Because ready if to we go. Well, if we like them, we'll just create them. <laughs> exactly. We will build them ourselves. We create everything else. Why not that? So, Patrick, why do we spell Brian with an E? Well, there's a number of. Words that are very thematic with S. Brian that also start with an E. One of them was, yes, education. And to be fair, I wouldn't have remembered that because it's not, not part of the repetition yet. Or you're not educated. No, I'm definitely educated. <laughs> My memory seems to forget sometimes, though. But who doesn't? Well, what are you now? 20, 25 now? 26. 26, yeah. Close well, enough, though. You're definitely having your senior moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Outside of that, empathy is one of the big ones, and he was not being very empathetic right there, folks, so yikes. But I am. I but am. You are always, I don't know. I don't know. always empathetic, Tracy. Well, why do you say you're empathetic? What, what, how are you empathizing with him? It's she. Because I recognized that he felt defeated and sad, <laughs> and then I offered to collaborate with him on a mutually beneficial sound effect that didn't exist. And, well, remember, this um, is a positive show. That's why we have the Rocky theme. That's why we have the antics that we do. This is a positive show. We don't have any depressing. Right. And I was offering encouragement. That's a good E too, by the way. Encouragement and enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. That was so weak. That is not enthusiasm. That enthusiasm. I mean, come on, seriously. Enthusiasm, excitement. 
<laughs> I mean, come on. I already thought he did. Keep going. He noticed that he just skipped right over estrogen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, he did. Acid. Well, we don't have any of that. We have a lot of testosterone, but not a lot of that. Anyway. Um, okay. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. I don't even have all the E's. Tra- Tracy, I'm so I'm so I'm, I'm sorry wait- on, on behalf. I'm so sorry. I'm waiting for the E's. Thank you. If you can't do it, we'll have Emily do it, who begins with an E. That is true. She does start with an E. Well, do you have any other E's why we have them? Yes, we do. There was, well, you already covered enthusiasm and excitement with that. I we- think so. Yeah, we did empathy, education, uh, experts, because everybody that's on Ask Brian happens to be an expert in their field. Others. Oh, and how about emerging brands, which is our guest today, is going to be talking about an emerging brand. Ooh, I like that, too. That's a special one for today. (laughs) Well, there's so many. You left out the one of the most important ones. Experience. Exp- no, I wasn't done yet. It's not like I was done. I, I you had no idea what you're doing. You're like, I don't know what to do. Let me figure something out. Listen, it goes out of order. I'm just trying to collect my thoughts. But experience was definitely one because everybody's very experienced in what they do here on the Ask Brian Show. What's your experience? Engineering and talking. Talking about what? <laughs> talking. <laughs> he has a degree in communication. That says something. What does Bingo. that mean? What does that mean? My sister's a dean. Well, I can tell you because I have one too. Well, it my means you can talk really well. <laughs> <laughs> well. My my sister is the uh, dean of the communication school at SUNY Binghamton in New York. So that certainly doesn't increase my uh, abilities to think that it has any any great concepts. Me and Tracy can speak very eloquently, and that starts with an E, by the way. Uh, well, not, not to mention, your sibling rivalry is not appropriate. We, it's not our fault you don't like your sister. I'm just explaining about communications, and there's not a lot, a lot to it. <laughs> but our guest has a very, very big E with it. Okay, He is not just the CEO of a great, great company that we're going to get into, but he's also an entrepreneur. And entrepreneur is really what Ask Brian is all about. We are trying to help people, educate people, and teach them how they can create their own business from nothing and make something out of it. So, without any further ado, uh, like to be called Mr. Brooks or by your first name, or how do you want to do this? Yeah, you can just call me Wade, my first name. Okay, Wade. You know, if you had an E, it would be better, but uh, we'll go with the W. So, the W, by the way, is good for win. Because I like win-win situations. Yes, absolutely. So, Wade, before we get into your product and what you have right now, give us a little bit of your background. You know, we don't need a you know a fifty-minute diatribe, but at least you know give me a couple minutes, at least one or two minutes about your background, and we can get into the product and what you're selling. Sure. So I've kind of always run companies, and when I was in college, between my junior and senior year, I started the first Apple computer value at a reseller in the United States, and since then I've been in tech. And then I retired young, and then I went on to become a business school professor in entrepreneurship uh, and venture investing and did research around angel investor returns. And then I got asked to start a company again. I spent a little time in New Zealand teaching there, and when I came back, this opportunity presented itself. I was an advisor to Live Bar, and as I looked at the product, I thought, this is amazing. Let's uh, raise some money, and let's take this brand nationally. So that's kind of my background. So uh, LiveBar started when? It started in 2012. It was founded by Jan and Gabe Johansson. And 
Jan's a nutritionist, and she still is a practicing nutritionist. She didn't mean to start a bar company. She just couldn't find any good bars for her customers down the aisles. They're mostly candy bars or had candy bar characteristics. And so she made this, and then all of a sudden it started selling like crazy uh, locally. And, you know, they ran it for a number of years and then really needed some funding to get it off the ground and take it nationally. We're now in all 50 states in Hong Kong. So we've uh, grown quite a bit over the past, even through COVID, over the past year. So where did, where did they start? Yeah, Salem, Oregon, which is where we still are. We had a little tiny 700-square-foot kitchen. Uh, we're now in a 14,000-square-foot solar-powered facility, and it really was one or two people in the beginning. Even when I came in, it was only really two people, and that was in 2018, end of 2018. And we now have about 45 people, so we've grown rapidly. It's a hard industry because of the distribution channel and such, and getting into the stores, the retail stores, but we've, we've had great success. So when I go down the aisle, there's probably 50 different nutrition bars from a Cliff Bar, which is pretty popular, to a whole bunch of different other bars. And I'm just trying to understand, what's the difference between your bar and the other bars? I mean, you're telling me about the nutritional level. You're talking about, you know, creatively how, how it differentiates itself. But I, I just don't understand with so many different bars out there. I mean, many of them claim to be nutritious. Many of them claim to have 100% of this or a you know, high fiber or low this or low that. What exactly is it about your bar that makes it so special? So that's a great question. There are, last I looked, 152 bar companies on Amazon, not just bars. The, the main differentiators for us are it's 100% organic. It's gluten-free, soy-free, corn-free, dairy-free, GMO-free. And making a bar like that is hard to make something that tastes good. We bake our bars, which 99% of companies don't do. And 99% of the bar companies actually don't make their bars either. We actually make them ourselves. But the recipes that Jan created, these are delicious. Like, it doesn't taste like any other bar you've ever had. So beyond that it's got a number of superfoods in it, and it's also all real food. So every single thing on the package, you'll know what it is. It's an ancient graded seed bar, so it's going to have sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds and all those kinds of things in it. It's not artificially sweetened. It doesn't have chocolate glaze over the top of it like a lot of the bars do. It's crunchy and chewy. It doesn't melt or freeze. So, and also, from an innovation standpoint, it's in the industry's only home compostable wrapper. So, wrappers are the fourth largest pollutant. And by using a compostable wrapper, we think that that's important. From a mission vision standpoint, we want the bars to be good for you, good for your family, and good for the planet. And we want to help empower people to make the choices to, to buy a good, healthy product. So are you saying that the um, – because you claim to be the, the one of the most nutritious. I mean, every bar that I look at says how healthy – it's a healthy bar and a nutritious bar. And you're right. When I've read the ingredients, you know, I could probably have a Milky Way and probably be in better shape, uh, you know, nutrition-wise. So I'm just trying to understand. How is it that uh, uh, all these companies out there are making these claims to be so nutritious and, you know, this is great to have and, you know, if you've got to skip a meal, just have the bar. How are they doing that and looking, you know, with a straight face? Yeah, I don't know how much they care about having, about being honest. I mean, it is a, it is a real problem in our food system in general. I mean, we know that sugar is problematic because of diabetes, cancer, and yet the sugar industry for a long time, nobody called them out. So there's a lot of powers that be in that space. I know because we've worked with different PR firms over time, but we don't work with anymore. 
But their job was to basically take something that wasn't healthy and tell people it was healthy. To give you an idea, Kind Bar is the you know the largest nutrition bar in the space. They just got bought for five billion dollars by Mars Corporation. Mars makes Snickers and M and M's, so that kind of tells you right where that space is. Well, of course, M and M's, Mars and Mars. That's what Mars is. <laughs> right now, Kind Bar. So, does that have nutritional value on the Kind Bar? Well, it is. It's more of a candy bar, really. Right. I mean, it's chocolate glazed. It's got you know a lot of sugar in it. Um, it has nuts, but it really is more on the candy side than it is on the nutrition bar side. And that's with most of them. And so part of what we feel our obligation is, is to educate people about all this kind of industrial food complex things that people are saying are good for you. But when you really look beneath the wrapper, it really is just a candy bar. Okay. So you came in the company, what, 2018 or 2017? Or 19, 2018. 2018. So when you came to the company, how many people were working there? Uh, really one. Okay. One plus me. All right. <laughs> and now you have a 14,000 square foot spot, and you've got a lot of, over, what, 40, 45 people working for you. So how Correct. do you grow the business? I mean, obviously, when you've got one, two people, you know, that that's quite a, quite a jump to get to 40, 45 in, in a couple of years. How did you do that? Yeah, so we had a lot of things going for us already that would have taken a lot of time to do. We had the recipes were already done, the packaging, the branding, that stuff was good to go. Um, what we really needed to do was grow distribution, uh, grow our manufacturing capability, grow our bakery, and add people and get on, get basically from a local Salem, we're in Salem, Oregon, uh, into stores from Salem, Oregon, into stores on a national level. In part, it's a very, very hard thing to do in this space, but you have to raise money to do it. It's possible to do it over a very long period of time without raising money, but part of the reason for me coming in was looking at this as an opportunity and saying, this can be an awesome big national brand. You just need some money. And so we raised a couple different rounds of money. I think so far we've raised about $4 million, and so that helps you grow. It helps you get in distribution. Uh, it helps you bring in the right people to help make your sales pitches, to help get the equipment you need to manufacture the product. So that's kind of that's the trajectory that we're on. And um, how many stores are you in right now? We're in a couple thousand doors. We're in every state of the nation and Hong Kong. Hong Kong. You know, most people they would say they'd be in Canada or Mexico, you know, or Europe. I mean, Hong Kong is like kind of a completely different area. I mean, how do you even get the product to Hong Kong? I don't even know how this happened. Um, we have a broker somewhere who has some store that they know the people who are there and they ship the product off and we sell in Hong Kong. So it's an anomaly. It's not something that we went after. I would say for most brands, going international is, is a huge complication and not something you really want to do initially. Even in Canada, you have to have the labels in um, uh, two languages. So it, it does make it harder. And where, where are your facilities? Because, you know, again, being in Oregon and then shipping to Maine and Florida has got to be difficult. So do you have distribution centers in other places or manufacturing places that, that can easy, much more easily distribute? Or how does that work? Yeah, in the Natural Food Channel, there are two very large companies that manage most of the distribution, UNFI and KEHI. And so we're in every D.C. of both of those distributors. And so they have, you know, between eight, I think one of them has eight or nine um, big facilities, and the other has 30. And so we ship all of those 
distribution centers. We don't have to ship to each one of the retailers, although we do that for some people. And the type of stores you're in, are, are we talking about the local natural food store or are we talking about, you know, Whole Foods and, uh, and you know, Kroger? I, I mean, what kind of stores are you in? Yeah, so we are in Whole Foods in the Pacific Northwest region. Uh, our biggest account is Sprouts. So Sprouts is 364 doors in 24 states. And then we're in all kinds of natural food stores all across the United States. We're in some convenience stores. We definitely have talked to Kroger numerous times. We're in the prospect of 7 right now. But, you know, it is a, it's a high-end product, and so it's a premium product, and so mostly it's natural food stores. And, uh, and then as we get bigger, we'll move into grocery and convenience. And what's the shelf life of a bar? It's a year, in part because we cook them. That helps the shelf life. Yeah, that was an interesting point. You said, so you bake them, and most people do not. Um, so if they're not baking them, oh, how, how are they making these bars? Yeah, they use heated up rollers. Um, for the candy components, the sugar components of it. Um, we've, we've talked to co-packers before. The expense of having a co-packer bake a bar is just crazy. I mean, it adds another 50 cents or a dollar to a bar. It just makes it unpalatable for people um, when it gets, by the time it gets to retail. But the thing about cooking is, like, you, we cook food because it makes it taste better. So in our case, like, it does not taste like any other bar you've ever had. You have all these big buyers for these huge companies, you know, you make your pitch, and they kind of look at you like, hey, I've heard it all before. And then they taste it. Their faces light up, and they're like, yeah, this really doesn't taste like anything I've ever had. They're like, yeah, it's amazing. Well, the engineer here is salivating, and he's saying, like, when am I going to get my bar? So I guess we're going to have to send some to Patrick because he just, he just can't wait to get some because he'll have to taste it and, and, and really take you up on that offer. Anyway, what do you find is a difference? You, you've, you've done both sides. You had your own company. Then you uh, taught people in school. And, and now you're the CEO of the company. Uh, how ha- what's the difference between learning about it in a book and actually doing it? So entrepreneurship is one of those things where you really need to do it to understand it. I, I equate it to Kung Fu. So if you're going to learn a martial art, you can't really I – mean, you can, there's some things you can learn in a book, um, but you really have to be out on the mat practicing uh, to, to really pick it up. And so when you're teaching entrepreneurship, at least when I was, you want to get the students out talking to entrepreneurs. Uh, I had a class where they had to start a company. If they got to an arm's length transaction revenue in the class, they would get an A. It's harder than it sounds. And so uh, when I had an angel investment fund, the first university angel investment fund in the United States also, where we went out and raised a million dollars and had our students invest in startup companies, and they actually had to run a fund. Like they had to go do all of the research and due diligence and make the investment decisions. So it's a lot of activity as opposed to book learning. And is it possible to be an entrepreneur and only work 40 hours a week? <laughs> I, have, I haven't found that to be the case. Absolutely. Although comedy doesn't start with a knee. But, um, <laughs> all right. So Tracy... Yeah wants to ask some questions a little bit more serious than she thinks I was. Those are very serious questions I asked. Very important questions. Those were very serious questions. They, they were very entrepreneurial-focused questions. But exactly. it, that last one just killed me because I bet Ken Ferris, who right before our work was, didn't even work four hours. So, um, But really good branding on that book, which is one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about. So we talked about the spelling and the pronunciation 
uh, of the name of the bar. Do you utilize the story of the of um, is it it's Jan and her husband, right? In terms of like, yep. do you utilize that in marketing? How are you differentiating yourselves on just a base level and also on creative and innovative level to really stand out among the sea of many many competitors that you have? Yeah, we do. Definitely, we, we talk about Jan and Gabe. Jan is the founding force, the creative force behind the bars, uh, and a lot of the philosophy, the philosophy of having everything be organic, real food. And then now we just recently, as of two weeks ago, moved everything to vegan. We pulled honey out of the bars and made a couple other minor changes, also having a slow allergen. But their, part of their story was they were not very healthy, and they really needed to make a lifestyle change when they were younger. And her husband, Gabe, had lots of allergies. And so part of this was saying, like, look, we need to make a change. We need to move to go to healthy stuff. Let's dig into that deeply, and then let's help other people do the same thing. From a marketing perspective, we do have a message from Jan uh, on all of our boxes about the story that they went through. And, you know, quite frankly, they did a, they did a great job with the company. It was amazing. It was just the next iteration where, and I see this a lot with, with new brands and small brands and people who created a product in their kitchen. Getting from there to getting to becoming a national brand is really hard. If you want to learn entrepreneurship, the best way is just to go start a company. But if you want to scale, <laughs> yeah. that's, where, that's where going and getting an MBA is helpful. But if you're going to start a company, you <laughs> well, a lot of money. Well, yes, but before we get to that, so with the, um, were you helpful in, because a lot of times entrepreneurs make the mistake of really just staying in that leadership role, being the founder and the CEO, taking on all the responsibilities that both of those roles can, you know, are required to handle. But it sounds like in an early stage with this particular company, there was a very clear separation between the founders and you being the CEO. Did you help with that transition? Was that something that they were eager to do? Was it a difficult transition? Yeah, that's always super hard. I had that problem with my first companies when I started them too, which is as they start getting bigger, I mean, you're doing everything. It's hard to trust other people and it's hard to, to get the right people you know, the people around you where the things you're not good at, you can find people who are good at them and then trust them to do it. Uh, in this case, there was another person who was one of their marketing people, and so they kind of, Jan and Gabe's other careers started taking off, and they transitioned it a little bit to him. And then I came in, and they transitioned it to me. I was a consultant or a, a advisor to the company for six months before I came in, and uh, there was issues with everybody wanting to let go of control and being okay with changes that had to be made. It's just a really hard thing, especially when it's your baby, to be like, look, this is great, but we need to change this, and we need to move off of we were selling um, primarily on Amazon. We need to get into the retail space. It's going to cost money, you know, slotting fees and free fills and a bunch of other stuff, and, like, we need to go in that direction. Uh, and then anytime you change anything that had to do with branding, messaging, press releases, and getting everybody to buy off on this is the direction, that's hard. We, you know, part of, part of this company is that it is a little bit of a rebel message that we have that is the industrial food complex is lying to you and they've been feeding you crappy food for a long time and we want to expose that and show people what real good food is and that's one of the messages that they had originally. It's easy to get away from because big corporate America is like, we don't want you talking about bad stuff, but we want to maintain that kind of homegrown grassroots messaging 
and ethos that we have. Well, from a marketing perspective, though, is there a challenge between basically coming from the perspective of expose and, you know, revealing, going up against the big brands to say, hey, their marketing and their messaging says one thing, but their product delivers something else, while at the same time trying to maintain this mom-and-pop homegrown image because they really serve two masters, if you think about it. Yeah, our bars are still handmade. Like, we make them... We roll them, hand roll them, do the whole thing. We, there was something that happened, it was about just before COVID, where Cliff Bar had called out Kind Bar to get a whole full page in the New York Times saying, we challenge you guys to go organic. Now, Cliff Bars aren't organic. I mean, they're maybe 50% organic. And so we tagged on that and said, look, we challenge you both to go all organic, and we challenge both of you to use compostable wrappers. And that we got into their news cycle, so that was kind of fun, and it's a little bit of a rebel thing, and I ended up talking to the folks at Clip Bar at a pretty high level. But as soon as they got out of the news cycle, they just didn't care anymore. Like, that wasn't, they were worried about the press of it. They weren't, they didn't have an ethos of it, at least, at least in the same way that we do. Yeah, it's hard going against, against the big guys, but that is what it is. That's part of the business. Well, and I think, too, I mean, encouraging and educating people just to know what they're looking at. I mean, I personally never thought about going as far as you know, as a purpose-driven company going so far as um, looking at the labeling and the packaging and everything in alignment with the ethos of the content of the bars, I think that's brilliant because it, it's all about the impact that you're making on the planet in general, both humans and eco, um, eco environmentally. So I think right. that's it, does, it does mean, though, from a positioning standpoint, it's hard because it is a premium bar then, right? Like, it costs us between 5 and $0.10 cents for the wrapper for a bar, there was another kind of interesting positioning piece here, which is you want to you want to maximize on things that you can monopolize. Not in a bad way, but like being handmade. Those kids can't be handmade. They probably can't be all organic, and they probably can't do compulsive wrappers. They're just too big for it. We would love to get big enough that we could make it more of a thing that everybody could use, just through the you know supply and demand issues of compulsive wrapping and such. But it does give us an advantage. So. Being smaller, more nimble, is, you have to use those when you have them. Is the company a B Corp? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, not right now, it's a C Corp. We've talked about it, and it, it's definitely on our radar of things uh, to do. But because we have investors, part of that structure makes it easier, at least in the beginning, to be a C Corp. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about the investors. So how difficult was it to raise the money needed, and are you still continuing to need more funds, and where would those funds be allocated? Yeah, great question. We have raised a couple of rounds of money. Mostly at the early stages like this, you're talking to angel investors. They have to be accredited investors. And most of the people either knew me, and so they're coming in because of my background and the companies I've sold before and them being involved in those. Or we have over half of our investors are people who really know LiveBar, who Jan and Gabe understand what the brand's trying to do, love the brand itself. As we grow bigger, there will probably be a crossover point where we're going to have to decide if we're going to grow organically or if we're really going to do like a venture capital round where you pour, you basically have a, have a small fire and they come in and say, look, we're going to dump a ton of gasoline on this fire which is they want to put tons of money in it to grow it faster, bigger. Um, that's not always the greatest thing for the current investors. It kind of depends what the what it looks like down the road. So, it's just, I mean, stuff that is my 
area of research expertise, angel investor returns and venture returns. So, uh, you know, we have to be methodical and make good decisions around those things. Most companies don't have that kind of a background. Most of them are, you know, and I didn't certainly when I started my first companies, uh, where you're just, you know, you start a company and you're growing the thing and all of a sudden you want to put money in and now there's solution and, you know, it gets, it gets complicated quickly. And how long has this business been in business from its origination date to where you are now? It was founded in 2012. Okay, because that was going to be a question I was going to ask. Is there like a shelf life for investors? For example, like if you if you haven't shown significant growth in the first six years, five, five to six years of the business, does that make you less likely to be able to gain angel investing or investment funding, or do they like to see a growth trajectory over a certain like three to five, five to ten year window before they're willing to invest? Yeah, when you're raising money, the companies that raise money and the companies that get acquired have a crazy growth rate over a relatively short period of time. So you want to grow as fast as you can. You want to use the investment money. You asked this question a little bit earlier, like what's the money for? You want to grow your market as fast as you can uh, in that scenario. So that's kind of the model. I mean, you need to use the money. It's one of the things that's really hard when you're an entrepreneur when you bootstrap something because you're always trying to conserve your money. You're not doing the expensive marketing things. You're not hiring a bigger team. You're, you're, um, keeping your powder dry and you're, you know, slowly, slowly building it and then taking the returns and reinvesting them. Uh, the venture model is totally different where what you're doing is you're saying, Hey, we're going to have investors put a bunch of money in and then we're going to spend that money in, in a right manner and in a frugal way, but to grow the business faster. And then that's the companies that you'll know of are usually the companies that have grown fast. Those are the ones that everybody talks about. So you're trying you're trying to get there. Let's talk about building a team and getting the right people because quite honestly, I think that's a huge huge requirement. If you can pick the right people, uh, that's very, very important. If you pick the wrong people, it can be a detrimental effect. So uh, can you get into the team building and, and those type of concepts? Sure. I had a big advantage here because I had, you know, 10 years of MBA students and I had MBA students who went out and went into the world and were successful who then wanted to, when I started something, come back and work with me to build up the company. So my director of marketing operations was the director of marketing operations at Adidas. And so that's what she's doing for us. And we have um, our top sales guy was one of the top sales guys in New York Life. Uh, and so I brought them back as my core team. I'd known them a long time. I knew they were good students, my best students. Uh, and then, you know, it's the most important thing you can do. It's really hard when you have, and this might sound somewhat conceited as a company, but it's, it's really not meant that way, which is it's hard to find people who are A players, who are very good, who don't worry about people kind of when you hire them that are going to take over their positions or anything. But if you have that team that really doesn't work well for people who aren't A players, people aren't very patient. And so you have to find really good people or they get chewed up and spit out pretty quickly. We've had some of those issues where we brought some people in who weren't working at the same speed or capacity that we were working at, and you just have to let them go. They just don't fit in. But, you know, the team, if you can find a team of A players, it's what you get from somebody with that caliber is 10 times what you would get from somebody who's just kind of coming in and doing their job and going back home. People are thinking all the time about innovative things they can do. They have a passion for it. But especially during covid it's been really hard finding good people 
Uh, that's one of the other things when you're talking about the growth and the growth trajectory. It's been crazy hard to basically have this amazing growth trajectory and then for 18 months have everything slow down and now start picking back up. We've been growing over that time, but it's been really hard for people, especially emerging brands because you can't sample in stores. We're doing it now, but you couldn't for a long time. What about co- company culture? Because isn't that tied into that whole concept about finding the right people that you have to they fit, fit the culture that you have? Yeah, for sure. We have a great culture. Our culture is it's a very flat organization, and it's a very open organization. So uh, in part because, you know, I've trained, um, you know, my top generals on entrepreneurship and venture investing. So things that you normally wouldn't share with some of your management team on the, on the fundraising side and some of the other things, we openly talk about all of those things. Uh, you do have to be careful because when, you, when you're talking about those kinds of things with different employees that might confuse them or, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people who just want to come in and do their job. And if you start talking about, like, here's strategies and we're doing that and this other thing, sometimes they just get agitated about it. And so just be careful, but you want a very strong management team who can then have those discussions with the people um, who report to them. And then, you know, we want the place to be fun. It's been hard with COVID because everybody's a little bit just generally depressed, but it needs to be fun. You need to enjoy your job. You need to be making a good product, something that you really feel good about. And so we have a big advantage on that front uh, just because of the type of product that it is. And do you eat the lip bar? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask. Do you have any cells on them if you don't eat it yourself, right? <laughs> I eat them with coffee every morning. They are delicious. <laughs> I, I love it. What if he said no? That would have been terrible. Well, he would have had some I don't know. Anyway, um, Tracy, uh, we've got about a minute and a half, two minutes, so go ahead. Yes, thank you. Okay, I just like to dig in. You know, you've, you've mentioned your professional expertise in terms of being a professor. What are some of the challenges, if you could in a nutshell, you know, what are some of the challenges that you've seen your students face, entrepreneurs face, and how does can they overcome some of those? Just super quick, top three maybe. Yeah, the, the biggest one is that you need to get feedback from customers. You, can, you can't just sit in a room and come up with these great ideas and think it's going to work. Uh, I think it was Mike Tyson who said, you know, everybody has a game plan or a fight plan of what they're going to do until they get punched in the face. And it's maybe a horrible analogy, but that's really what happens, which is you come up with all these great ideas and all the financials and everything else, and you go out to the market and the market's like, yeah, I don't like it. I'm not interested. I'm not going to buy it. And so you, you need to have that repetitive feedback. That's the biggest thing in entrepreneurship is going to the customer, talking to the customer, and having the customer come back and tell you what they like and what they and what you want to change. And you have to take that to heart, and you have to make those changes, or you kind of have to get out of business and do something different. And that's, that's, that's the biggest one. Said, <laughs> but isn't building the plan probably the hardest part for a visionary entrepreneur? I feel like that is a big struggle sometimes, is even building the plan before you get punched in the face. <laughs> yes. So plans aren't like they used to be. There was a book called Getting to Plan B that came out. I think Kleiner Perkins guys wrote it. And generally, people aren't following plans or writing plans. As a venture capitalist investor, we don't see plans like we used to. It's more, you know, give us the pitch deck. Thank, thanks a lot. I hate to do this to you, but the show is over, and we got to take a Thank you very much. I told you. No worries. Thank you. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian radio show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit askbrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.